First is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8. It's a short passage. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the other reading is from Acts chapter 26, when Paul defends himself before King Agrippa. Starting in verse 9, he's telling about his life before he was converted and after. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a service for a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan, Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me. If you would stand for our reading, it's in Revelation chapter 17. Just for two verses, verse 13 and 14. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Father and our God, as we open your word this morning, would you teach us, would you mold us 
as you have the right to do. We are the clay, you are the potter, for you have made us, and it is your good privilege and right to make us as you wish. For those that you've made that do not yet know you, cannot call upon you as Savior, have no assurance, that are at war with you even, pray that this is the moment that you open their heart. Give them a new heart. Take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Give them true saving faith. Give them repentance where they can call to you for salvation. For those of us that do know you, that do bear the name of Christ upon our heart, that do call on you as Savior already, give us a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit, whereby we may serve you and glorify you. We may teach others. We may spread your word for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Book of Revelation is a hard book. Um, It's not a book that I often choose to preach from. When your pastor gave me carte blanche to preach whatever I wanted to, I pressed him several times for, you know, what do you what do the people need? What's you know, what's going on here? What's what's the tenor? What's the temperature of the congregation? What sins do you have you need an outsider to address? You can come and give you this and then walk away and let him pick up the pieces. <laughs> but he said, just preach what you want, whatever the Lord lays on your heart. And as I read this passage, I can't even remember how it came to me how I was exposed to it. It just said, this is the passage to preach. Revelation, as I said, it's a hard book. Much is veiled, much is hidden. There are stories and events told and then retold and retold in a cyclical form, so it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on, when's going on. But throughout the book, we get glimpses of Christ in his kingdom, in his glory, and it's given to give us hope and comfort for the world we live in, and for the world to come. This passage takes place in a time of war. As many of us feel, we're in a war right now. We're in a war of ideals. We're in a war of culture. We're in a war of faith versus godlessness. Talks of two groups of people, those who belong to Christ, but those who remain in the grip of Satan. Those who are not of God are his enemy. Their whole life is one of strife and warfare and enmity against God. Twice in the book of Isaiah, God says, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Those that do not embrace Christ despise God's kingdom, despise God's rule in the world. Despise his rule over the world, that is. They despise his authority. They despise God's people. And they do it willingly. In verse 13, we see those are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast, to Satan. They willingly hand over and acquiesce their enmity against God. Romans 1 and 2 gives us a glimpse of those who are in open opposition to Christ, repeatedly saying what their life is like, their ungodliness, the things that they engage in. We must ask ourselves, is this the way of my life? Am I at war with God, hating his kingdom, 
his rule, his authority, his people. And even if we don't appear to be at war, our unbelief, our apathy, our indifference in itself is still an affront to God. Psalm 81.15 says, Those who hate the Lord would pretend, would pretend obedience to him. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him. But Christ is not impotent, powerless, and will not be forgiving of their sin at the final judgment. In verse 14, it says, Christ conquers them. Christ will conquer those that are in opposition to him. And even those that, when they're conquered, will eventually bow the knee to Christ. In Philippians 2, we read, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's one group of people we see in this passage. But there's a second group of people we see in this passage. God's people, the ones he has set apart for himself, those for whom Christ has died, those who truly live their lives for him. I want to focus on just the last part of this passage. Those with him are called and chosen and faithful. There are three things stated here which are core truths of the gospel. That those with Christ are there because they are called by God. That those with Christ are there because God has chosen them. And that those who are with Christ will be faithful through God's power. I want to open up each of these truths that God has declared. I'm going to change the order just a little bit. I'm going to go with the second one first. Those who are with Christ are there because God has chosen them. Now, before the call can go out, a choice has to be made. When you played dodgeball in elementary school or kickball or whatever you did, you usually had, at least in my school, you had two team captains. And what would they do? They'd be thinking, as soon as they're made captain, I want to choose you and you, and you, I want you to be on my team. They're already thinking in their mind, who do they want to choose before the call goes out? Before God calls us to himself, he has already chosen himself, already chosen us. And we hinted at this in Ephesians this morning. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Feel free to turn with me if you want to use your Bibles. I sometimes go a little fast, but I do have notes I could send to you afterwards if you'd like. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. This is not an isolated, obscure, remote, lone passage of Scripture with nothing to back it up. John 13, 18, Romans 8, 30, Romans 9, 11 through 18, Galatians 1, 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, 2 Timothy 1, 9, Hebrews 12, 2, 2 Peter 1, 3, 
1 John 5.11, Jude verse 1. Those are just a few, few of the many, many passages in Scripture where God has chosen his people. And it's not just one man's opinion like Paul, John the Apostle, the writer of Hebrews, Peter, Jude, many, many men over the centuries have testified of God's choosing them in many passages of Scripture, Old and New Testament. This is a distasteful, repugnant idea in our egalitarian society. Why would God choose some but not others? Why would God choose some but not others? But we must understand the situation from God's point of view. Why would God choose any? Why would God choose any? Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 1 makes this beautiful garden. Chapter 2 puts two people in it and gives them one command. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God makes the decree, the creator, the almighty. And he's been defied to his face by his creation, by those who were literally dirt just hours or days before, made from the dirt, are now living in open opposition to him. But what does God do? He lets them live another day. He clothes them. He promises a redeemer to them. This is grace upon grace upon grace. In Romans 9, we read, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Sons of the living God. And in Romans 5, verses 8 and 10, but God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Instead of despising God, hating God, questioning God, rejecting God, what should our response be to that? Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. We should be praising God, thanking God, for even deciding to redeem his people. Those with Christ are there because God has chosen them, and those with Christ are there because he has called them. They are called by God. If God chooses something, he will make it known. It will be not be some nebulous, wandering through the desert, hoping in our part, wishing, waiting, seeking. God will make it known by calling his people over and over and over in scripture Adam Noah Abram 
Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Hosea, Amos, Peter, Matthew, Paul, Ruth, Mary Magdalene. These are just a few of the people that God called. They weren't looking for God. Peter, when first approached by Jesus, says, I'm a sinful man. Why are you coming to me? Paul was breathing out threats. Murder in his heart. God has chosen these people and called them to himself. And he still does this today. That isn't just for the people in the Bible. That's for you and me. Romans 8.30, those who he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Why is the call given? On the basis of anything done or will later be done by ourselves? No. It's only through God's good pleasure. Jesus said in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Romans 9, 11, though they were not yet born, speaking of Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And probably my favorite passage is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And all that God has called will come to him. All that God has called will come to him. Jesus said in John, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not might come to me or it might get lost on the way, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And he later says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We can take great comfort in knowing that what God ordains will come to pass. He will make it happen. Those with Christ are there because God has chosen them. Those with Christ are there because he is, they are called by God. And lastly, those with, who are with Christ will be faithful through God's power. Those that God calls and chooses, he grants faith to as well. I looked at a verse in 1 Peter earlier about God choosing us, but he continues on in that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who by God's power are protected through faith. Whose faith? Your faith? No. It's the faith that God grants to each of his children. Even the faith we have is a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of your works. This is also testified in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Philippians 1, 29, 1 Peter 1, 1, and many other passages. We are given faith, faith to call on him, Faith to obey, which I'll say a little bit about more in a minute. Faith for the trials that we face in life. Faith to live. Habakkuk and later Paul repeats, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith, as some translations say it. Those with Christ are there because God has chosen them. Those with Christ are there because they are called by God and those who are with Christ will be faithful through God's power. What about, what about those not with Christ? Those on the other side of the battlefront. Those in opposition. There will be no second chances for them once they perish from this earth. The writer of Hebrews says, and just as, had, as it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There will be no other hope once they've perished, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, Peter says in Acts chapter 4. Their end has already been determined, and there will be certain destruction. Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. So what does all this have to do with you and you and you and each of you here today in Pembroke, New Hampshire? on October the 23rd, 2022. Look at the passage again, verse 14. Look who it says conquers the enemies of God. They will make war on the Lamb 
then the Lamb will conquer them. In chapter 19, this scenario is told in a slightly different way, and it talks about Christ coming as you would typically think a king coming in battle. White horse, armor, fire coming out of his mouth, literally a sword of fire coming out of his mouth and destroying his enemies. What's he called in chapter 17, 14? He's called a lamb. The lamb who was slain for his people. The lamb slain for his people. Let me read a passage from Hebrew, from Colossians. Talks a little bit about that lamb. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with, our, with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing to the cross. Nailing to the cross. Your sins were nailed to the Christ through the hands and the feet of Jesus. The lamb that was slain. I think it's ironic that the enemies of Christ are making war not only on the king of the universe, but on the lamb that saves his people. Jesus bids us to come to him. That king who will have a sword coming out of his mouth to conquer his enemies in chapter 19, that lamb who's come to conquer his enemies, is also holding out the same arms that will be nailed to the cross are being held out to each of you when Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, does it say, harsh and vindictive? He has every right to be against his enemies. Does it say passive and indifferent? You figure it out. You, you, you know, I'm not going to call you. You've got to read it for yourself. Figure it out. No. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. King, the Lamb, is holding out his arms for each of you to save you. Save you from this present darkness to save you for the life to come. And we read it, a passage this morning in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You know what that's saying? God is going to dwell with each of us in heaven. Where's God now? We, we can't touch Jesus. We can't see Jesus. We touch him by faith only. We call on him by faith, by prayer only. The time is coming. We will live with God continually. 
he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We can't even begin to understand and fathom the goodness, the grace, the glory, the wonder of heaven. That should give us great comfort. But for those who are not in Christ, we can't begin to imagine the horror, the pain, the tears, the suffering, the crying that will forever be theirs in an eternity in hell. Until that time of Christ's return, what are we to do? What are we to do? Nothing, just let time pass away. Let God do it all. Let God call his people and choose them. Living our lives as before. We are to be about the business of the kingdom. Living in obedience to Christ, as Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or in the words of 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word. We must be people of the word in the Bible. This is where God is talking to you. This is where God is speaking to you, giving you comfort, giving you life, giving you direction. We should be living in prayer. Jesus said in Luke 18, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The windows of heaven are never shut. Prayer is always available for his people. And we are to be in his house. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to be preaching. We must be people who are in the church. What God has ordained is the means of grace where his word is spread. And not only living in obedience to Christ, but living to further his kingdom, working in his garden, bearing fruit. Jesus in John 15 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What's he talking about? Bearing fruit. I used to ponder at that passage when I was a young believer, and I thought, is that like how many people I witness to, how many people I convert to Christ, how many people I invite to Sunday school or to church? No. That's part of it, but it's maybe not the emphasis. It's the secondary. Things like love, joy, peace, goodness, mercy, long-suffering, patience, kindness. These are fruits that we don't normally produce in our lives. Secondly, being disciples all of our lives. Jesus said in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. A disciple is a follower of Christ, one who follows after Jesus, learning of him, and also making disciples all of our lives. Jesus said just before he ascended back to heaven, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them 
to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The passage in, I think it was Philippians or Colossians a moment ago. For many of whom I have often told you and I even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We should be weeping for those we love, bearing the, bearing the good news to them, crying out to God, save my sister, save my brother, save my mom, my dad, my children, my coworkers, my neighbors. Revelation 17, we don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know when that ultimate battle will, will take place. How can we think about delaying a response to Christ? How can we even think about delaying when we should come before Christ? How can we think about putting it off? Invitation of the cross is there. Invitation of Christ to come to me is there. Paul admonishes us, working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to call out to God for salvation. And it's also a time to pick up the cross, an invitation to follow Jesus to the cross. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I admonish you today, if, you're, if you've never heard these words of Christ before, follow Christ. Call on Christ for your Savior. If you don't understand that all, I don't expect you to have a seminary degree and to be able to quote scripture, but all you have to do is, Jesus, save me, a sinner. God is calling you to do that. I pray you do that today. And if you don't understand, please come to me or one of the elders here or, or the pastor and have some time to, to talk with them and unburden your heart. But for those of you that are believers, I challenge you to pick up your cross daily follow Jesus not as a rule of life to I mean a rule to, to obtain salvation or to keep salvation but as a way of loving Jesus if you love me you will keep my commandments our Father and our God we pray for those here today that you would inflame their hearts just burn their hearts give them a give them the, the faith to call upon you for salvation. Give them the true repentance. Work in them a new heart for those who have never called upon you before. And for those that do know you, put a fire in their belly. Put tears in their eyes for the lost. Put a desire to read the Bible, to pray, to be in church. Love their neighbors. Bind up the brokenhearted to show Christ to others.
not to obtain life, not to keep our position in heaven, not to get glory for us, but only that you may be glorified for what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.